Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a cloudy autumn morning here in the capital is Matt Corson. Matt is the CEO of Chiswick Park Enjoy Work, a £1.8 million square foot business campus located in West London. Um, Matt, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Matt. Um, normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation that's hung over us like a dark cloud this year, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject from that angle. Reason being is because for leaders within all walks of life, the pandemic has been such a huge challenge. But for yourselves, just to what extent has all of this affected things? Yeah, sure. It's the pandemic has has had uh, an impact on many businesses and the business park we operate has um, 12 buildings and as you mentioned 1.8 million square feet of office space um, and with nearly 200 companies based on the park we, we we've noticed the impact um, in a very real way um, ever since the start of this year I think because we have a diverse range of companies on the park, many of which are international companies. We were able to get really ahead of what was happening COVID-wise before it really hit the UK. So we were really proactive early on in the year um, following feedback from guest companies who actually have offices elsewhere in the world. And so we were able to react and then get a team together and manage the incident um, very quickly and we were able to make as safe as we could all 12 buildings that we have on the park mm-hmm. um, so guest companies can continue to operate um, and we have companies that are running 24 hours a day seven days a week and uh, media companies for example and so as the pandemic started to hit the UK and continue to grow we were fortunate that we, we were ahead of the curve and we had measures in place, we had teams in place um, and we'd had various communications with the companies on the park um, to work with them to maintain as safe as environments as we could. And that really grew um, as a working relationship really between ourselves and the companies on the park throughout this year, um, including to where, where we are still sat here today. So we were fortunate in a way that we could get ahead of the game mm. and, the, and the power of relationships really came to fruition as we worked with all the companies to maintain a safe environment for the business park. Mm, certainly encouraging to hear that safety has been something that you've been able to deal with. And with regards to what we've seen during the last few months in 
um, relating to our change in working practices. What sort of future do you think, particularly the commercial property sector, has in store? Because there's a lot of talk at the moment about whether there will be a wholesale transition toward remote working or whether businesses, um, of course, are going to be keeping hold of their commercial office space. So from the impression that you've got so far, what sort of future can the sector look forward to? It's a great question, and I think there, there's probably still change ahead from this particular industry and sector. Um, I think from talking to the companies on the park, that research we've been doing, the idea of working from home as opposed to the office is not new. It's something that's been around um, for, for, for a while and been very effective in many ways, but it's not suitable for all businesses. Um, and with the range of companies we have, um, the 24-7 approach for many of the companies, um, there's still a need for that office space. There's still a need for people to come together to collaborate, um, not necessarily to come together just to sit at a computer, at a desk all day, but to actually use the office environment to engage, meet, discuss, share ideas. And so I think it's more the office space um, is going to evolve mm. moving forwards. Um, and that's what we've seen seen on the park. And we've seen most companies on the park, there's nearly 200 companies, and um, they're, they're all still using their office space in some way, shape, or form, just slightly differently to how they may have used it before. So I think it's important is the office space for a business. Um, it will just get used in a different way. I think it's an important message. Mm. I suppose also there is still a mental health and well-being argument in favour of office space as well. As much as the remote working side of things has helped with the work-life balance, the social isolation element of lockdown has shown just how much as humans we value that face-to-face interaction. And that's another reason why I think business leaders will be thinking maybe we should keep hold of our commercial office space just to, of course, cater for that as well. Um, Thinking about that point, just how important do you think, Matt, that mental health is in leadership considerations, both in terms of safeguarding one's own as an executive, but also that of the people around them? I think it's another great point, and it's never more so topical as it is now. Um, I think well-being in in, in the corporate world um, has grown in focus for, for companies over recent years. And I think this will push it to an even bigger focus and priority to make sure that companies in the corporate world truly have um, uh, a robust well-being mental health support packages available for their team. And you're right, in that working at home in an isolated way has huge benefits, but also has huge challenges as well. Um, and as a business, we invest a lot of time and money um, in providing that environment on the business park. We have a range of well-being initiatives um, that fall under our brand, Enjoy Work, that all the 200 companies on the park engage with. Um, during the lockdown uh, early this year and throughout this year, we have developed our at-home program so that we can still engage guests. Um, with a range of initiatives from well-being classes and cookery lessons um, and um, mini speaker events, um, games and initiatives that people can do at home because the, the ethos and culture of Enjoy Work 
over the last 20 years has been leading the way with regards to corporate well-being. And um, we're very fortunate that we have 33 acres of parkland in around our 12 buildings. And so our outdoor space is just as important as our indoor space. So previously, until this summer, um, we would have run a range of outdoor events from zip wires from buildings and cooking events and outdoor cinemas, etc. And it's really about trying to enhance the well-being while you're at work so you can improve your performance and get more out of your working hours by being healthily, both physically and mentally and socially. And we create that environment to enjoy work through the team that we have, the mm. programs that we deliver. And many of the companies on the park are truly invested into that value. And that's why they've stayed with us for so long. And moving forwards, our at-home program will continue to evolve and grow. And we'll then, as we move into next year, we'll bring back some of the physical initiatives that we deliver around the park. So the environment that we create is a holistic well-being environment for all companies, for any worker of any age, um, and it, it's a really important part of the future. Um, even during lockdown, we have a range of initiatives that have continued to run week after week, which have been hugely popular, where people can still be engaged whilst working at home, as well as for those working on the park. And I think the relationships that we have with the companies on the park will continue to grow as we develop new and innovative events and um, well-being initiatives moving forward. So it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a growing area, mm-hmm. but it's one as a business that we feel we've really led the way over the last five to ten years and will want to continue to do so moving forwards. And just thinking about moving forwards before we do wrap things up on the show, Matt, just because I'm conscious that our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close. How are you hoping to develop that over the course of the year, the next 12 months within this uncertain landscape? And indeed, where would you like Chiswick Park and Joy Work to essentially be this time in a year? Again, we have plans for the next 12 months. Um, the key is that we have to adapt and we have to have flexibility. Um, we, we plan what we can and then month by month, based on the current situation, um, we'll, we'll tweak what we need to do. We will continue to deliver um, a healthy and robust home program for all the companies that are on the park. We'll continue to deliver buildings for office environment that are safe, that are healthy, um, and we'll continue to to engage with our guests on a regular basis. Um, we it's about creating the optimum environment for our guest companies and our guests to perform as best as they can at work. And it's anything from smart smart building, smart energy management, um, smart events, um, smart initiatives to help people keep healthy. Um, whilst they work and we're going to continue to lead the way with this with new innovations and new initiatives that we're researching and brainstorming literally on a monthly basis over the next 12 months and so in 12 months time Scott I believe we'll we'll continue to be a business park that leads the world in how to engage companies in well-being and health 
and provide these optimum office environments for the future. And it's a fantastic mission that you're on, Matt. I'm thoroughly um, pleased with the uh, the scale of the ambition that you have, even in the uncertain landscape. And that sort of positivity, that optimism, it's really infectious during a time like this. And I think we could all use a dose of that to really up the morale. And I think just given the scale of those ambitions again, I, th- I actually think it would be wonderful, Matt, to catch up in future and have you back on the show with us maybe a few months down the line just to see how that's all starting to bear fruit for you. And hopefully there'll be some really good news to share yeah I'd, I'd welcome that i'd be happy to share and it'd be great to come back and um share how we're moving on that on that mission um there's it's tough times out there and mm. with the right leadership and the right framework and um, we can all get through this and we can all come out stronger in some way moving forward absolutely we can for sure. There are certainly a lot of lessons for leaders to take away from this whole experience and we can't lose sight of that going forward for sure. And it's something that we need to really keep at the forefront of our minds as we try to negotiate this tricky winter ahead. Um, for now, Matt, thank you ever so much for your time and taking to uh, join us on the show. And um, do most importantly, with everything still going on in the world, take care and stay safe until we do get an opportunity to speak again. Thanks very much. Best wishes, Scott. Take care of yourself. Thank you. And I would also extend that to all of the listeners tuning into today's programme as well. Please do continue to stay well and look after yourselves and please do be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Matt Coulson, CEO of Chiswick Park and Joy Work onto today's programme. Next up on today's show, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England skippers, himself included, to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test wins for an England captain in history. Quite impressive. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has spent a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and further expanded his work championing charitable and mental health concerns. And I do hope that all of you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan welcomed the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it. But I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game, and I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
a team. Uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was <laughs> I, actually. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's 
women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say... But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward 
in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.